Well, good morning. Great to have each of you here on this uh, Palm Sunday. Whether you're in the room, whether you're joining us from online, we're uh, glad that uh, you've joined us for worship this morning. If you're here for the first time, uh, we just want to say a special welcome to you and let you know a couple of ways that you can get connected or find out more information. There's uh, in the seat back in front of you, there's a thing called a connection card. Uh, we would love to have you fill that out just for you to let us know that you are here. You can give us whatever information that you would like on there. And uh, there's some boxes on the sound booth uh, as you're heading out. Out, you can just drop those in the boxes on your way out, and we would reach out to you this week. The other thing I want to mention is we have something called Take 5, and uh, we'd invite you to take a couple mim- minutes right after this service. There's uh, be a few pastors, elders, uh, just an opportunity to, to connect to some of the leaders here, leadership here at the church um, for just a couple minutes afterwards. And so you just go out these doors, head to the left. There's a place called the Commons. You'll see some signage down there. Love to meet you down there if that would be something that you would want to do. Want to let you know uh, what's going on this next weekend as we get ready to celebrate Easter on uh, Good Friday. We will have two identical services. They're at 6 and 7.30. The bulletin actually says 6 and 7, but uh, they're 6 and 7.30. The one at 6 o'clock, uh, that's when there's child care. There's no child care at the 7.30, and so uh, make sure you're aware of that. And if you do have children, it's for uh, zero to pre-K. If you have a child or two or three or five that you'd like to sign up for child care, make sure you uh, do that by... Wednesday so we can have enough uh, volunteers down there. And then uh, next Sunday as we celebrate Easter, we will have our our normal services. And uh, just wanted to mention that there are these cards uh, out on the welcome desk uh, around where the communion service is as well. Grab one or two. You may have a friend, someone you've been reaching out to that you would love to invite to join us. We'd love to have them come. Many people, it just simply takes a friendly invitation for them to take that step to go visit a church. So be praying and thinking about that as well. On Sunday, April 16th, we will have believers' baptisms. There's a number of people that are already planning and preparing for that. If you've been thinking about it and just haven't pulled the trigger yet to sign up, we want to let you know today's uh, the last day to sign up for this uh, believers' baptism service. And so you can go to the Church Center app. You can go to the website, get to events, and uh, find baptism. You also could just take one of the connection cards and write baptism on it, and uh, that will get you signed up. We're celebrating communion today, and so as you came in, if you didn't grab the the little cups, make sure you slide out at some point to to grab those. I'd like to read our scripture for today. Steve's going to be preaching from Luke 22, verses 31 to 34, and then 54 to 62. Luke 22, 31 to 34, and 54 through 62. Simon. Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. 
And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is God's word. Thanks, Brian. Good morning to all of you. You know, sometimes I'm glad I wasn't one of Jesus' original disciples to have my deepest failure right out here for all posterity to read, to learn from. Uh, But we have Peter's experience, his deepest failure. And so you may not have come here today wanting to think about this, but I'd like to ask you to bring to mind one of your deepest failures. In other words, think of a way in which you have failed God, failed another person, uh, ultimately you failed yourself, I'm sure, by doing something that you knew you should not do. You have sinned in some way. And for you, it may be in your distant past, or it may be in your present. You might be right in the middle of it right now. It might involve things that you've thought things that you have said, things that you have done, maybe all of the above. Could be that almost nobody knows about your failure, or it could be that pretty much everybody in your life knows about your deepest failure. It could be that it was kind of a one-time thing, single action, single decision, Or it could be something that is ongoing, repeated over and over. You know, when we fail, and we all do, okay, we all fail in different ways. When we fail, uh, in the church anyway, we tend to go one of two directions, kind of opposite extremes. Sometimes we, we say to God, God, I have learned my lesson from this moment forward. I will walk with you closely. I will prove to you that I am worthy of your, of your love. And other times we go the other direction, right? We say to ourselves, self, you are such a loser. You are such a fraud. Why do you keep pretending like someday you're going to get past this? Why do you keep pretending that someday you're going to be a true follower of Jesus. Why don't you just give up and do everybody a favor? Can you relate to either of those extremes? Chances are you can relate to both of those extremes at different times in your life. Well, today's passage gives us another option after we failed God or others or ourselves in some deep way. And please know that this option is not halfway between those two extremes. Uh, These two extremes are are very self-centered, self-focused responses, what I can do or what I can't do. This response isn't even on that spectrum. It's a whole different path. It's a God-centered response to our failure, what God can do, what God wants to do. Peter's experience in Luke 22 tells us that our deepest failures, failures reveal the extravagance of God's grace. 
And so our failures reveal something about us, but if we allow it to, it will also reveal something about God, about his extravagant grace. And the implication is, is that when we fail, instead of becoming fixated on ourselves, we should fix our eyes on Jesus, on God, and become enamored with who he is and what he does, what he wants to do in our lives. And so we're going to first look at Peter's deepest failure, and then we'll consider the implications for our deepest failures. So the passage Brian read from Luke 22 describes Peter's failure and then God's extravagant grace. It's hinted at, it's foreshadowed, it's um, promised. And to me, uh, Luke 22 verses 31 through 34 are some of the most intriguing verses in the entire Bible. That, that's to me. Uh, in this passage, Luke lets us listen in on a conversation that Jesus had with Peter the night when he was when he was arrested. And Jesus begins by telling Peter or Simon something he had no way of knowing. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. There are numerous times in Scripture when the, when the curtain is pulled back and we're given a glimpse into the unseen spiritual realm. Uh, it happened in Job 1 when Job came before God. He came before this, the divine council, and he, he said to God, basically, take down your hedge of protection around Job. Let me have my way with him, and he will curse you to your face. And so he made a wager. And, uh, and Satan lost that wager. In a similar way, Satan came and he demanded permission to sift Peter like wheat. And that's the image of wheat being separated from the chaff. And similar to the situation with Job, Satan wanted to prove that Peter was all chaff. He was all fluff. He was a fraud. And if he did that, he would also prove that Jesus really didn't have any true disciples. He really didn't have uh, followers who would, uh, do, would deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow him. He just had a few admirers who would quickly fall away when things got tough. Well, the subsequent account makes clear that Satan was granted permission to sift Peter like wheat. And what Jesus said next reflects his heart toward Peter and his heart toward you. He says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And so Jesus wanted Peter to know that he had prayed for him. Specifically, he had prayed that after Satan sifted him like wheat, that his faith would not fail. And that's Satan's end game, right? He wants, he wants our faith to fail. He wants us to absolutely abandon any faith in Jesus, just to give up on it completely. But Jesus wanted Peter to know that he had talked with his heavenly father about this. And he confirms that Peter's faith wouldn't fail when he says, and when you have turned again, not if you turn again, but when you have turned again, he says, strengthen your brothers. And then that context to turn, that's, that's the, the, the picture of repentance, to turn from sin and turn back to God in faith and loyalty. And uh, he says, when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. So he's telling Peter, 
You're going to be useful to me. After you've turned back, after you've failed miserably, you turn back, you're going to be useful to me. You're going to, be, you're going to strengthen the church. Well, look at Peter's response. And Peter said to him, verse 33, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And again, we love Peter's transparency here, right? He just says what's on his mind, what's on his heart, and it's recorded for us. And so Peter really believed that he was ready to follow Jesus, to be arrested with him, if necessary, to die with Jesus. And we're told from the other gospel accounts that the other, the other apostles said the same thing. So this wasn't just his bravado. Uh, Peter really believed that this was the case. And Peter was no coward. He wasn't. You keep reading in Luke 22 that when the, the guards, the high priest, and the servants came to arrest Jesus, that one of the disciples pulled out his sword and he lopped off the right ear of the high priest's servant. Well, John tells us that that person was Peter. Peter was willing to risk his life for Jesus. He, he actually was. But Peter did not know his own heart, just like we don't know our own hearts. But Jesus did, and Jesus does. Verse 34, Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. It's not always the case, but many times in Scripture, three represents completeness or wholeness. In Isaiah 6, for example, when the angels cried out, the cherubim cried out, holy, holy, holy. They were saying, God, you are completely holy. And by denying Jesus three times, Peter was completely disavowing any loyalty to Jesus. And so this is the sifting that Satan had demanded. Satan would tempt Peter to deny Jesus completely. And as we'll see, that's exactly what happened. After Jesus was arrested, Luke gives a very detailed, nuanced description of Peter's denial beginning down in verse 54. And guess where, guess where Luke, who wrote this gospel, guess where he would have got this dialogue? Guess where he would have heard all these details? all this nuance of what they said and what Peter said in response. Well, most likely, Luke got it directly from Peter. Peter has recounted this. He's explained, this is what happened when I was sifted like wheat. And I love that the Bible doesn't ignore or sanitize the failures of Jesus' disciples. It's very, just very honest, very clear. This is not propaganda. This is an, uh, an honest account of what happened. And instead of making us less inclined to follow Jesus, it serves to highlight the extravagance of his grace. Look at verse 54. Then they seized him, Jesus, and they led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. 
And so instead of raising his hand and saying, I was with him, Jesus is Lord, instead of confessing Jesus is Lord, he, de- he denied even knowing Jesus. Denial number one. 58, and a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And so there he was being accused. You were one of the disciples. And so Peter, instead of saying, yes, I was a disciple, along with the 11 others, I followed Jesus through through good and bad. He said, no. He said, no, uh, I'm not one of them. He denied him a second time. And then the next denial came about an hour later. So he had time to think about this. This wasn't rapid fire, three denials. It's an hour later, verse 59, and after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. Matthew tells us that this man knew that Peter was from Galilee because of his his accent. And Peter had a third opportunity to confess Christ but he denied him instead. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Before the words got out of his mouth, the crow of the rooster entered into his ear. And apparently the courtyard where Peter was was just adjacent to where Jesus was being held. Because we read in verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, For the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And so when when Peter made eye contact with Jesus, when he saw him, uh, he immediately remembered exactly what Jesus had said would happen. Now we aren't told here, but what do you suppose was the look that Peter saw on Jesus' face? Do you think Jesus was giving him that I told you so look that we often give to other people? I don't think so. Do you think it was disgust? Do you think it was abhorrence? I don't think so. I think there's probably sorrow, right? I mean, Peter was one of his closest, closest friends. He's part of the inner circle. Maybe it was compassion, but he saw Jesus. And we read verse 62, and he went out and wept bitterly. Judas, after he betrayed Jesus, he went out and hanged himself. But, but Peter, after he denied Jesus, he went out and wept bitterly. Jesus had told him, uh, after Satan has sifted you like wheat, after you've turned, strengthen your brothers. Peter started to turn back to to Jesus here. Uh, This is what Paul would later call godly sorrow leading to repentance. And we've been studying the book of Acts here on Sunday mornings, and and we've seen confirmed that everything Jesus prayed for Peter came to pass. His faith did not fail. Once he turned back to God in repentance, he did strengthen his brothers and sisters. He had a voice God had opened his mind to understand the scriptures. He had been uh, given the gift of the Holy Spirit. He was very clear, very confident about who Jesus was and why all of this had to happen to Jesus. His faithful discipleship dominates the early chapters of the book of Acts. 
And, and somewhat ironically, I think, the book of Acts and subsequent history tells us also that Peter's boastings about being arrested with Jesus and dying with Jesus, they also came to pass. He was very willing to be arrested for Jesus. He spoke in Jesus' name. He wouldn't quit preaching in Jesus' name. He considered it an honor to suffer shame for the name of Jesus Christ. And ancient documents, and as well as Fox's Book of Martyr, tells us that when Peter was arrested in Rome and he was sentenced to death, crucifixion, he made a request. His request was, I want to be crucified upside down because I'm not worthy to be crucified the way my Lord was. And so Peter had a, he had a tough life, a lot tougher than my life, but it was so full of grace. He finished his race. He was given this free gift of eternal life, and for all eternity he'll experience the extravagance of God's grace. And it comes on the heels of his deepest failure. And so let's think about our deepest failures and God's grace. And here's my my question for you today in light of this passage. Do you think that Peter's experience, failure, restoration, do you think that is the the, um, rare exception or do you think that it's the norm? Is it the exception or the norm? In other words, do you think that Satan wants to sift you like like wheat? Do you think he wants to take you down? Do you think that Jesus knows your heart better than you do? Do you think that do you think that after you've been sifted like wheat that you're given this this gift of repentance? That Jesus has prayed for you and after you turn that you too will be useful more useful to God than you were before. Well, when you read through the Bible, you find many examples of people who repent after their deepest failures, and they they find the grace of God to be extravagant. For example, you remember after the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they're in the desert, Uh, Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. One guy made a golden calf. And the the children of Israel, they all bowed down and worshipped it. You remember that guy? He was Aaron. He became the first high priest of Israel. He became the main worship leader of Israel. He experienced the extravagance of God's grace. And then, of course, there's David. He he sinned in, in spectacular ways, adultery, murder, and yet forever he's known as a man after God's own heart. When we see David in heaven, nobody's going to feel sorry for David. The extravagance of God's grace. And so his, his experience, Peter's wasn't the rare exception. It's the norm. The details of his life, his situation, were unique. But the same factors at play in his failure and restoration are at play in the life of every believer. And so I just want to give you a, a few scriptures. We'll look at this very briefly. But I want you to leave here today knowing something deep in your soul about the extravagant grace of God. First of all, think about Satan's schemes. Just like Peter, you and I have an unseen enemy. He's a spiritual enemy who's powerful, he's intelligent, he is cunning, and he absolutely wants to take us down. 
He doesn't merely want to annoy us. He actually wants to destroy us. He wants to bring us to a place where we just absolutely abandon any faith in Jesus Christ. Not surprisingly, years after Satan had sifted him like wheat, Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 5. He knew this well. He's speaking from experience here. Be sober. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And so the command is be sober as opposed to careless. Be watchful and resist through all the means that God has given you, through prayer, through the word, through uh, faith, through the gospel. So we have this enemy, but let's consider some elements of God's extravagant grace. For example, God's knowledge of our hearts, just as Jesus knew Peter's heart, God knows our hearts comprehensively. Psalm 139, David wrote this. He said, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You stretch out my path and my lying, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. And so understand, David wasn't saying in some vague, kind of amorphous, amorphous way, God knows everything. He's saying, no, he's saying God knows everything about me. He has this personal omniscience of everything about me. He knows what I'm going to say before I say it. He knows every thought that I think. He knows me. And God wants us to know the same thing. Just like Jesus knew what Peter would say before he said it, he knows us. He knows everything about us. And he wants us to know that he knows our hearts better than we do. Specifically, he knows our deepest failures before they happen. He actually does. And just like Jesus called Peter to himself to be his disciple, knowing full well he would fail, he draws us to himself, knowing about our future failures. We're actually told in Romans 5 that while we were, God, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. That's pure grace. Well, think about Jesus' prayer for us. Just as he prayed for Peter, he prays for us. Hebrews 7 is one of those amazing chapters. He argues, the author argues that Jesus is a superior high priest because he has a priesthood permanently. And he says this in verse 25, Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so if you have drawn near to God through faith in Jesus Christ, uh, you need to know that he prays for you. He intercedes for you. He always lives and he intercedes for you. And surely this includes his intercession for your perseverance, that your faith would not fail, but that you would remain a disciple of his. 
And of course, knowing that he intercedes for us never makes us complacent or pass, passive, right? Well, Jesus prayed for me, so I'm good. I can just live however I want. No, it's supposed to rise up faith within us and courage within us. Jesus prays for me, and so I can seek God and find him and walk with him. His prayers for Peter were effective. Surely his prayers for me are going to be effective as well even in light of my deepest failures. How about repentance? This ability to repent, to turn back to God once we sin, that is pure grace. I don't know if you ever thought about it, but God didn't have to give us that option. He could have said, one strike and you're out, okay? But he didn't. Just like Peter could turn back after he had, had, had denied Jesus, we can turn back. 1 John 1 tells us that if we've been walking in the darkness, in other words, we've been not been tr- practicing the truth, so imagine a, a spotlight and there's a cone of light on the ground. You've been skulking around in the darkness doing things you know that aren't within the holiness and the, the goodness and the will of God. If you've been skulking around in the darkness, he says you can step out into the light and be washed by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You can come clean, and you can experience this cleansing, this fresh experience of forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just like he did with Peter, he restores us to full fellowship with him. And like Peter, we are now equipped to be used by God, to be used by God in ways that we weren't previously, in enhanced ways because of what we've experienced of his grace. And so it's not just for us, it is for us, but it's also for the people around us as well. And so all that to say that our deepest failures reveal the extravagance of God's grace. And so as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's table this morning, I want you to consider where does this truth intersect your life right now? Where does this truth intersect your life? And so no doubt, uh, some of us here today are followers of Jesus Christ, but we are right in the middle of our deepest failure. This is not ancient past. This is present tense. We're right in the middle of of our deepest failure. We're just like Peter sitting around the campfire with the the people around. And Satan is sifting us like wheat. And he is whispering lies into into our minds. There's some aspect of Jesus' teaching that we're thinking about abandoning. And we're on the bubble. It's not at all clear that you're gonna you're gonna turn back. You're thinking about going off in some direction that may have consequences that just so far out of your control, you just can't imagine. If that's you, I would just plead with you, learn from Peter's experience. Make eye contact with Jesus. See his sorrow, see his compassion, and understand that he knows exactly what you are doing what you are thinking about doing. And he has prayed for you. And understand this, he is not one bit surprised at what is happening in your life right now. 
I've got a friend over, who over the last couple of years has pretty much convinced me that, that God is never disappointed in us. He's never disappointed. He's grieved sometimes. He's sorrowed sometimes by what we do. But he's never disappointed. If you're disappointed, it means, oh, I thought you were this person, but it turns out you're this person. That never happens to God. He's never surprised. He already knows who we are. He sees how we're going to fail. He has prayed for Jesus, has prayed for us, and his prayers are effective. He offers us this gift of repentance. And so if I'm describing you, maybe the thing you need to do this morning, this afternoon, is to go out and weep bitterly. Let that sorrow sink down into your heart, this godly sorrow. Come to a place of repentance. Turn back to Jesus. Let him cleanse you. And you will be more useful to him than you ever imagined. Maybe that's you. Or maybe you're a follower of Christ and your, your, your failures are largely in the past. It's not that you're perfect, but you are experiencing God's extravagant grace. I mean, you have just experienced it lavishly. And if that's you, I would just say, praise God. Praise God. Seriously, that's the most frequent command in the Bible. Praise God. Express to him just how amazed you are at what he's done in your life. No doubt there's others of us here who have never thought in these categories. You've never thought about what God might want to do for you freely, free of charge, pure grace, undeserved, unmerited. Maybe you've always thought in terms of the categories I mentioned at the first of what you can do for God. Maybe you've always thought, well, if I just try as hard as I can, I just do, do good for as many people as possible, then maybe God will just ignore my failures, my sins. Or maybe you've done something you think is so horrible that you think you're beyond that, that there is no way that you have a chance with God. Well, if that's you, I would just say to you that, that Peter's experience is very relevant for you. Like Peter and like everybody else in this room, you have sinned against God in ways that you cannot mend. You can't get rid of your own sin by yourself. The wages of sin is death. But Jesus has done something that can remedy your sin. You see, after Peter denied Jesus, Jesus was interrogated, he was flogged beyond recognition, and then he was crucified on a Roman cross. And on that cross, he bore our sins. And so if you admit that you have sinned, you just come clean and say, God, I've sinned and I can't get rid of my sin. But I, and then you put your faith in Jesus, but I believe that when Jesus died, he died for my sin. Then you will receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Your sin will be blotted out and you now, you are now just as alive to God as Jesus himself. And now you have this forgiveness, you have this cleansing, you can be restored to a relationship with God and you can be used by him in ways you can't even fathom right now. And so we're going to take some time. We're going to have some, just some moments of, of silence. And uh, maybe you need to receive this most extravagant gift that you've ever been offered, this offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. And so... During this time of silence, just take a few moments to ponder all of this. 
Maybe you need to just praise God. Maybe you need to come clean on some sin. But receive Jesus' extravagant grace today. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the body and blood of Christ. We thank you for this remembrance. We thank you for your word that reminds us that your grace is so available to us. We pray, God, that this week we would walk in faith, that we would walk in freedom, and that we would walk in the power of your grace. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.